Welcome to Reconciliation Roundtable, a new podcast where we discuss building bridges of understanding across religious and political difference. I'm your host, Mark Beckwith, retired Bishop of the Diocese of Newark in the Episcopal Church. There are forces and voices in our increasingly polarized world that want us to view each other in the issues of the day in a binary way, this or that, good or bad. I want to invite you on a journey beyond the safety of our silos and our egos to the soul, where we have the opportunity to see things differently. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find more content like this, please visit my website at www.markbeckwith.net, where you can listen to more episodes, read my weekly blog, and sign up to get weekly reflections in your inbox. I also explore the themes of this podcast further in my book, Seeing the Unseen, Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and Party Lines. With me today is Angela Farrell Zabala, who is now the executive director of Moms Demand Action, a grassroots movement of Americans fighting for public safety measures that protect people from gun violence. She has a long career as an activist, but foundational to all the work that she has done is her faith, and we'll get to that in a minute. Twelve years ago, she worked with the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, and in 2014, she moved to Planned Parenthood, where she became the National Director for Strategic Partnerships for its Action Fund. In 2019, she uh, moved to Every Town for Gun Safety, which is where she and I got to know one another, and she was the Senior Vice President for Movement Building now the executive director for Moms Demand Action. So it's my honor to bring Angela into Reconciliation Roundtable with all her wisdom, passion, and commitment. Angela, you've had a long history of being involved in important issues, but undergirding that is your faith. And uh, you write about that. You say uh, thoughts and prayers are important, but we need to act with urgency. Where did that start? How did that evolve? It feels very innate for me, Mark, that I, I just kind of feel like since I was a little kid, I was always looking to connect and looking to be helpful to people. And I think I saw that play out in many ways. First of all, I come from a background of many different traditions. My father's side of the family, my grandfather had a church, Southern Baptist, really fun and interesting when I was younger, going to service and seeing that. And then my mom's side of the family, Episcopalian, Jewish godfather. Uh, and as I grew up, my sister is Muslim now. I had an uncle who's Buddhist. So, so much of these traditions came together. And so the foundation for me was faith was good. Faith was a very good thing. It meant that we connected community. We took care of each other. We had a responsibility to be stewards of each other. And so that's what kind of the foundation of all those traditions that came together, even though oftentimes people are looking for what is different about these different traditions, I saw a lot of sameness. And so that was really important to me. And then of course, seeing my mother in particular, how she would live her faith. And she didn't ever announce that she was religious, you know, in any way that people would typically think about it. But what I saw was actual works that she was putting in. 
she was stepping up and making sure because she knew that she felt responsible as a, another fellow human on this planet, um, raising her children. I'm the oldest of three girls, raising her children with my dad and seeing other communities and other parents and, and any struggles that might happen from day to day, that we have a responsibility to take care of each other. We're not waiting for Superman, not waiting for the elected official to do the thing or the policy to be written up or someone to vote on the thing. All those are important, but we could do something right now today to make a material impact in someone's life. And that's what I saw with my mother. And so I think that's where my faith came from is that I saw a lot of sameness and a lot of, um, a lot of overlap in traditions. Also this grounded feeling of being connected to something bigger than myself, which because I had this opportunity to connect to other people and live the life that I'm living, that I also had a responsibility that came along with that to ensure that other people were taken care of and treated well. And I think that's kind of the foundation of my faith. Yeah, your mother's been a strong influence. Yeah, and I remember her seeing her in action. Um, and I wonder sometimes, did she have the presence or was it this innate thing that just pushes you into action? Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, except when it's very strong. And Mark, I'm sure you had these moments where you feel like you visit or have a presence that is, is so overwhelming and so sure that this is what you need to do. And my mother, I remember, was a Saturday morning. We were driving for errands. And so the street we were driving down did not have paved sidewalks. It was kind of like almost a highway, a slower highway. And on the side of the road, there was a woman walking. She had all these bags in her hands. And as she walked, the bags were hitting the sides of her legs. And you could see kind of the dust kicking up from the gravel that she was walking on the unpaved uh, road or sidewalk. And it was a hot day. My mother looks in the rear mirror, myself and my two sisters in the back. And as she's pulling over slowly, she says, we have a responsibility. This is another woman. I'm sure she's probably a mother and a member of our community. We got to make sure she's okay. And I sat with those words as she pulled over. She communicated with this woman. My mom had not a lick of Spanish she knew. And the woman was an immigrant from Costa Rica, we found out later, who barely knew English. And somehow they communicated. She got in the car and my mother took her to her destination, which was just getting her home. And that was a big deal to me because it showed my mom didn't write a law or policy. She didn't go and run for office, which these are all great things. But sometimes I think people think they have to aim so high to fix something. And all you have to do is take one step forward. And especially if you're doing this in consideration of others around you, it's going to ripple. You've had other moments where, as you described it to me in this wonderful conversation we had four years ago at a gun violence prevention summit, where you were, my term for it, visited yes. <laughs> by a presence that guided you to where you are now. That's absolutely right. So many times that has happened. And when you say the presence, I love that, Mark. I, if you don't mind, I'd like to share a little quick little story about when this happened. It was really strong for me. Please. So th while this is kind of maybe a couple of years ago, was coming out of the pandemic. And I remember I had to go to CVS. It was a Sunday. And, you know, people talk about Sunday scaries when you're preparing for your Monday work week and you're just like, oh, the kids have to go to school. This is happening. This is happening. And I remember I had to make an errand. I had to run to a CVS and my son came with me and, you know, I was kind of like rushing to get there. I was kind of in a cranky mood because I didn't want to have to go in the first place. It was cold outside, all the reasons in the world why I didn't want to go. But I went anyway. We went to CVS and we get in. I hear a lot of like commotion and it's 
someone is like cursing and yelling and I'm, this is making me more annoyed. I'm like, what is wrong with people? Like folks are shopping, there's children here and someone's just like, what are you doing? There's like no respect for yourself or other people. And I was in that place. I was in a very closed space. And I said, come on, let's get what we had to get. And I couldn't find it. So it just added to my frustration. <laughs> By the time we get to the register to pay and we're in line, this commotion had escalated. And there's a man at the front and he's pointing his finger and yelling at the cashier on the other side, two gentlemen. So the one that was yelling, the gentleman that's a cashier. And he's yelling and he's yelling obscenities and he's getting very violent in his language. And I remember there was an older woman next to me. He's like, someone should call the police because he started to threaten. He's like, I, and I'm going to warn people who are listening that I'm going to use the, some of the language, but he said, I'm going to blow your head off. Wow. Um, I'm going to kill you. And this was just really alarming for me. I'm sitting in the line. My old, my son at the time was probably 20 years old. And I'm just like, oh my God, I knew I didn't want to be here. Now this seems like it could be a dangerous situation. I just want to get out of here and like figure out, do we have to call the police? What's happening? And so the guy went on for like another minute and then the guy that was yelling left. And I got up to the cashier, it was my turn next. And he was, you know, he seemed like he wasn't shaken, but I could imagine with that those kinds of threats, how I would feel. So I asked him, are you okay? Do you need something? Do you need me to call somebody? What do you need? He's like, I'm fine. And he kept going about his job because this was his job. He's the cashier here. He's doing his work. I walked outside. I'm so aggravated by this time. And outside of the door was the, the young man that was yelling and maybe a friend of his. And all I wanted to do, and there was a woman that walked up to him and said something and walked away. All I wanted to do, Mark, was go to my car and go home. Sure. I just wanted to go home. I was over it. And I tried to go to the car and my body <laughs> said, no, you're not going to the car. You're going to go talk to this young man. And I'm thinking inside again, the presence comes over and is like, you're going to go talk to him. He needs you. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I need to go home. This could be dangerous. And I want to get my son out of here. But I kept, it kept pushing. And so I gave my son the bag. I said, go in the car. And he was confused. And I walked over to the young man. And I started, I can't even remember how I started the conversation, but I will tell you, by the time this conversation, like midway through, he had fallen into my arms and was weeping. Wow. And I found out that very recently, I think his grandfather or someone died. Someone that was very close in his life. He has a young son. There's just all the tension points were coming out. He was just crying and he was shaking. I was holding him up. Now, this is a bigger guy. I'm holding him up while he's just shaking and crying. And we get to a point, his friend is there. We get to the point where he's standing and he falls again and I'm holding him. And I said, I love you. I don't even know you and I love you. And that's why I want you to do better. And you know, people love you. You have a son and I understand. I hear you. I'm not in your shoes, but I hear your pain and just know that you're loved. And it's, we don't have to you know, you were in CVS. We don't have to threaten. We don't have to. Let's figure it out. Is there something that you need? Is something we can do? And he's like, no. And he was fine. I walked away from that. I got in the car. My son, I didn't know he was with me the whole time when we was driving. He's like, wow, wow, that was dangerous. And I just started to cry again because I didn't choose that. <laughs> and somehow I followed the presence and I did the thing. And I know that I made an impact that day on him. And I hope, I hope and pray that he still, that comes back to him, that he feels when he's in those moments where it's so like almost pressure cooker, anger and pain is coursing mm -hmm. through his body so much so that he's the only outlet he understands is possibly harming someone else Yeah, that he remembers that he's loved and that there's something else that we can do. Wow. 
I don't know. The dynamics are a little bit different, but I certainly can see it. A parallel between the story you told about your mother picking up a woman uh, struggling down the street and you're reaching out to somebody who is in a different kind of distress. You had this example from an early age and you continue to live it out. Yes. Like I said, not, sometimes it feels non-consensual, Mark. I just do it. <laughs> <laughs> and well, speaking of reaching out, we both have a deep commitment to reducing gun violence. We know that there are many people who are committed to reducing gun violence and the way they argue that we reduce gun violence is by having more guns, uh, by protecting the Second Amendment at all costs. How do you, in your faith, in your work, reconcile this polarity? It is not easy uh, in the sense that it is really, it's a lot. It's its a lot. Um, but I will say this. I always approach things with meeting people where they are. You know, in our network, Moms Demand Action, Students Demand Action, Every Town for Gun Safety, we have so many people from all walks of life. And Mark, you know this firsthand. It's mm -hmm. going to take each and every one of us to solve this public health crisis. Mm -hmm. And so we I meet and talk with gun owners all the time, particularly our veteran advisory council that we have mm -hmm. um, that have a lot of experience with firearms. And they know that this has gone too far. I think they try to make it a false choice. It's either you can own a gun or you can have gun violence prevention and gun safety. That is absolutely ridiculous. There are common sense measures that we can all take to make sure when we think about this through a lens of faith, or at least the way I think about it, is like we have a responsibility to each other and to community. This is the leading cause of death for children, kids, and young adults in our country. That's not okay. Mm -hmm. That's not okay. And I would challenge anyone that identifies as a person of faith or says they're religious, that if you hear that, what does that do to you? Does that put you into action? Does that put you into a place of like, let's discover how we move from that? Because unlike childhood cancer or car accidents, this is totally preventable. And yet here we are. And so I think it is frustrating, but instead of going, and this is like time and space has got me here because when I was a hot-headed young organizer, I just wanted to tell people where they were wrong, what they didn't understand, and just join me and let's do the right thing. Yeah. But I just understand that people are approaching this from different, like different experience, life experience, different understanding. And so meet people where they are. Let's have the conversation. The first thing I would say to someone that would challenge me, and this has happened, and it's not challenged because, you know, I'm not interested in engaging in a back and forth argument. I do want to have a conversation and we don't have to agree. Sure. I remember this just happened in August. I was in Chicago for a conference. I was in a hotel. There was many of us that were doing gun violence prevention, many folks from every town and mom's man action there. And there was a gentleman that happened to notice and he's like, what is all this? And he went, came to me and he's like asking very interesting questions. Now, by his questions, I wouldn't have known that maybe he doesn't agree he, you know, he was like, well, interesting. And, and what are you doing with gun violence? And what is that? But he's like, well, look, I just think, how are we going to protect our families? And we need this and that we have to arm ourselves. And I said, let me, let's just start here. If we all are armed and there's no regulation at all, how is that going to fix the problem, the crisis we think about our young people in this country? From the trauma of school safety drills to so many people, so many young children and people that I talk to when I say children, 
I'm dating myself. I'm getting older. So everyone is now ch a child. <laughs> now I know how my family used to talk to me, but young adults, young leaders, this is what they're grappling with. This is their reality. And the fact that so many young leaders are saying, I don't believe, especially leaders of color. I was visiting with some young black men in Baltimore that they will make it to a certain age. Like it's literally an inevitability for them that they will not be here because of gun violence. Yeah. And so let's talk about how we make that different. And so when I start from asking questions, being curious, which by the way is a choice, curiosity is totally a choice. You can decide you know everything like I did when I was a hot-headed organizer way back when I started. Or you can decide, like, I don't know everything, but I certainly am going to bring the tools and gifts I have to put towards solving this problem. And I have to do it in tandem with other people. And so therefore, I've got to understand where they're coming from so we can have some kind of understanding and common ground. So I think it's not as, you know, while it can be frustrating, for me, I actually enjoy being able to talk to people that come from different place or a different understanding than I do, because I think that's where the growth, that's where the change happens. Not preaching to the choir, not talking to, you know, the same people in a bubble, but people that are very different, because I think that's where we start to find solutions together. I am uh, more and more disposed to think that the prophetic voice that we need today is what you just described, finding place of common ground, which is different than compromise. But That's common right. ground. So often we think of prophetic voices as preaching, as you said, to the choir. We need to be speaking with people who disagree and making sure that we don't shame or act with arrogance, which is not always easy to do. Yeah, but so necessary, as you said. You know, someone asked me before, because when I get to travel around and I'm meeting all kinds of folks, I had the great honor and privilege not only to meet the president, but the vice president. I'm like, wow. And, you know, are you fangirling? It's like, you know, I'm very honored to do so. But this is how I see it. It's not saying that these aren't incredible folks. All everyone is. I love the president. I love the vice president. They're doing incredible work when it comes to gun violence prevention in this country. And we all have a place if we just approach it from, we all have a place, it's an ecosystem. We all have something to contribute and give. The president and the vice president are doing so. Our survivors out here that have, you know, someone has been taken from them, or they themselves have been shot and wounded, are doing something. Activists are doing something. Our young student leaders are doing something. We all have a place in this. And if you approach it from that and say, we all have collective responsibility together and we must work together, then it's much easier to approach it as like, okay, let's solve this together. Now let's figure out the tools we have, lay them all out, and then go from there. Instead of saying, I have all the answers, or I have been crowned, or I'm this or that, let's really come from a place of common ground and understanding. A question that has been uh, looming in me, and perhaps you've had it asked of you by many others, for many years you worked in reproductive rights, and now you're working in gun violence prevention how do you tie that all together? I think that would be very helpful for me and for others. Yes, absolutely. So when I did both reproductive justice and reproductive rights and health, which people are like, well, isn't that the same? I will say reproductive rights and health really focuses on the laws and policies that are going to make it so that particularly women, but all people can access reproductive health care as they need and when they need. Reproductive justice comes from a place that was developed and came and coined by women of color that saw kind of melded the human rights lens, just thinking about general human rights with justice and access. 
And so together, this is where um, reproductive justice came from. So when I think about this through a reproductive justice framework, what we're saying is that people have the absolute right to make decisions about how, if, and when they will bring a child into this world and when, and if they bring a child into this world, that that child and children can thrive, not just survive, but thrive in safe communities. That means access to food, education. That means you don't walk out of your door and fear for your life when it comes to being shot and killed in this country or gun violence. That means that you don't have the trauma of school lockdown drills every day. That means that simple tasks, going to service, worship service, going to the supermarket, going to a sporting event does not have to end in a deadly tragedy. That's what the link is for me. It's making that safety. Like if we're saying that you have the human right to make decisions about if and when and how you raise your children, then isn't part of that right the right for them to exist in safe space without the fear of gun violence? That is very clear to me. And there's other things that we can connect to. I would also say from a reproductive justice standpoint, when we think about relationships, when we think about particularly domestic violence, we know that the Supreme Court's about to hear the Rahimi case, oral arguments on election day. Uh, and we think about domestic violence, we think about women that may be threatened or harmed and are raising their children or trying to take care of their children that spills out to the community. When the abuser has access to a firearm, she is five times more likely to be shot and killed. And that is, I mean, that not only ripples to her family and her children, but community and beyond. So there's so many connections to women's health and rights, reproductive justice and health when it comes to gun violence prevention. As you're talking, it is recalling something I remember that Jeffrey Canada said, who is the founder of the uh, Harlem Children's Zone and was featured in a documentary called Man and Superman, yeah. talking about kids who start uh, without the privileges of other kids and said, oh, you know, it's often said, we want to help kids beat the odds. And Jeffrey Kennedy said, we want to change the odds. And that's what I'm hearing from you. Let's change the odds so everybody can flourish. Right. And I'm inspired by your passion, your commitment, your faith, and paying attention to these taps on the shoulder from these invisible presences that are real and powerful. Angela, it's been just an honor to have this time with you. How can people uh, continue to hear you? Where, where can people access uh, your wisdom? Sure. Well, thank you so much, Mark. You can follow me on Instagram at, at Pharrell Zabala. That's a mouthful, but it's F-E-R-R-E-L-L-Z-A-B-A-L-A. So follow me there. And you can always join our network of volunteers across this country. You can text READY, R-E-A-D-Y, to 64433 and plug in to the work that we're doing. Because it's, again, it's going to take everybody to get us on the other side of this issue. What a gift to have this time together. Blessings to all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I can't wait to do this again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reconciliation Roundtable. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and visit markbeckwith.net to stay up to date with new episodes, blog content, and other news. Please, if you could, 
rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It helps new listeners to find us. 